Well, last week, I was abruptly absent, but we had a, a great time. It was really great weather, and uh, Ann did a great job of setting everything up, keeping me in the dark, and I was legitimately surprised and terrified at the same moment. But I know you were in good hands, and thanks, Gil. Appreciate that. I haven't even listened to your sermon yet. I've got to listen to that this week. I will. Or the sword's coming after me. I get it. Well, in my notes, which I did last week, in preparation for last Sunday, now is going to be pushed forward to this Sunday. So when I say last week, I mean two weeks ago. We ended our lesson on Jonah with him being projectile vomited onto dry land. That's a pretty graphic description. How many have experienced that in your own life? Your children. Yeah. So I think God got his attention, humbled him a little bit, and now Jonah's back among the living. And for all practical purposes, he was, he was dead. He was in the water. He could have been dead. If, if God wasn't there, he'd have been dead for three days. And now he appears on land. I've heard, I've seen a couple of commentaries saying, I wonder what he looked like. Was he covered in fish guts and whatever? Pasta? Was he kind of bleached because of the gastric juices in the stomach? Did his appearance get people's attention? I'm thinking, yeah, probably did. Maybe give him more credibility. Now, it doesn't say that, but we just assume that. We can't, you know... We can't be dogmatic about that. But Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah being sufficient evidence for everyone to believe. In Matthew 9, 12, 9, 39 says, but Jesus replied, only an evil, faithless generation would ask for a miraculous sign. But only the sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the son of man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will rise up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here and you refuse to repent. In Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, it says, as the crowd pressed in on Jesus, he said, these are evil times and this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to him was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to me will be a sign that God has sent me, the Son of Man, to these people. So, what's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is seen in the experience of his, quote, death. For all practical purposes, he was dead. He was buried in the fish underwater and resurrected, resurrected on the third day. God allowed the fish to spit him up on land. He was surely going to die if not for God. He's put back on dry land now from being dead. Now he's living among the people. Think about it. He, he was tossed overboard. The storm stopped. When Christ was crucified and he died and was buried, what happened to the storms in our life? They calmed down. They allow us to experience them with a calmness. Everything has or should have been calmed when you came to know Christ. We are no longer tossed about in our lives by sin. Jesus died to end those storms. 
the storms of sin. It doesn't mean we don't face periodic troubles and tribulations in our life, but God gives us the peace through them. The, the song we sang about fear being gone. The Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. When you know that God loves you perfectly, the fear that we have about whatever is coming up should be alleviated because you know that God's in control and that God loves you. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Jonah was in the belly for three days. Jesus came forth and preached repentance. Jonah came out and preached repentance to Nineveh. But Jesus is telling those people and, and us to not only look for signs. Now, we've been talking about on Wednesday night how they, they occur. God still does miracles. God still does healings. But that is not what we should be looking for. When you look for God, you look for the resurrection. You don't look for the miracle. The miracle leads you to the resurrection. The resurrection is the only thing that God uses to save someone. How many of the miracles never save anybody? People experience miracles all the time, but they don't, they don't become Christians. Wonders and signs and miracles should be the norm for the church, but they shouldn't be required before you believe. See the difference? The Pharisees of that day were saying, hey, you know, show us a miracle. If you show us a miracle, then we're going to believe. And Jesus is saying, even if I give you a miracle, you're not going to believe. And you shouldn't require a miracle because the miracle doesn't save you. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the acceptance of that is what saves you. And when people ask today for a miracle, how many know they don't, they don't really want to believe? They want to see a miracle. They want to see a, a bona fide miracle. They want to see something supernatural. We said before that the world wants supernatural things. And something, if we don't do it the way they think we should do it, the way they think God should do it, they're not going to believe anyways. They just want to see something stupendous, something supernatural. And if Jesus didn't do whatever they asked him to do the way they wanted him to do it, they would, be, they would walk away in confidence believing that, well, he's not, a, he's not the Savior because he didn't do it the way I think he should do it. Now, when I, before I was a Christian, I would argue with people about about this kind of stuff. And I would say, I would ask them questions. Questions that were not really, I didn't want a, a response to. I wanted an argument. I wanted to just argue with people about things. I didn't want an answer to believe. I wanted an answer to fight. Pharisees wanted an, a miracle to fight. Not a miracle to believe. Miracles may verify the truth of the gospel, but the miracle itself does not bring salvation. Now, we pray for miracles, and we believe they happen. And we, God uses those things to get people's attention, to bring people in. The miracle itself does not save people. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was dead. Three or four days he was in the tomb, and the Bible says that the lady said, hey, he stinks, you know, he's rotten. Brought him out. And the Bible says that people walked away not believing. You saw someone resurrected from the dead. I would think that I would believe. But they didn't. Some of them walked away and turned him in for doing that miracle. The sentence I wrote down, no miracle should be required or needed by us as a condition of our belief. I don't have to see a miracle to believe. When I got saved... 
we were praying for my daughter Lauren at the time for God to do a miracle. Now I got saved before God actually did the miracle. The miracle came after that. It was a verification of what happened in my life is true. The miracle didn't save me. I didn't get saved because of the miracle. The miracle happened afterwards. And so when God does miracles, it's to draw your attention to Jesus. The fact that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ should be sufficient for you to believe. Jonah, for all practical purposes, died. Buried in the fish, resurrected on land. That's the sign. Jesus says, you're not going to get a miracle as a sign. You're going to get my death, burial, and resurrection. That's going to be your sign. And the Bible says over 500 people saw him resurrected after he was dead. So that is our sign. Jonah had repented. God spared him and put him back on land. But the question is, had Jonah gone too far? Think about it. He ran away, got swallowed by a fish. God spit him up on land. Okay, maybe my ministry's done. You ever wondered if, if you're disobedient and rebellious, is God through with you? It's easy to think that he is. And the enemy will like you to think that he is. But even if you rebel against God and then you come back, God can still use you. Are there things that if we do them, we become ineligible to be used by God? Well, the answer is yes and no. There's no sin that God is not able to forgive, and God can use anyone to accomplish anything he desires. You commit a bad sin, you kill someone, you go to jail. God can use you, you get saved in jail, you become an evangelist in jail. You can't use you outside of jail, but he can use you in jail. No matter where you are and what you've done, God can pick someone to do something for him. If I rob a bank and get caught, I can be forgiven, but I'm going to go to jail and no longer be able to use by God outside of jail. But it doesn't mean God can't use me in jail. The consequences of sin narrow my ability to be used anywhere and everywhere. If I do something that's sinful, I no longer can be in ministry, depending on what that sin is. Doesn't mean I can't be used someplace else, but it means my limit is there, self-imposed because of my sin. I guess I'm saying that you can always be used if you get right with God. It may not be where you want it to be or where you thought it was going to be, but you might limit your effectiveness because of your sin. So Jonah gets puked up on shore. Then what? Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Well, remember, he hadn't been hearing from God except the very beginning. It shows us two things. One is that Jonah's repentance was heartfelt and sincere. It wasn't just a jailhouse confession. God wouldn't accept his repentance if God knew it was insincere. You know, it's easy to mouth a prayer and say, I repent, but not mean it. It means you're sorry you got caught more than you're sorry that you actually did the sin. I think we can all tell when our kids are sorry for something or they're sorry that they just got caught. When we were in, in Myrtle Beach, we passed this place as a campground called Pirate Land. 
And I'd recognize the name because when I was a little kid, man, 10, 12 years old, we were on vacation. And my brother and I, and this campground was located on some kind of a lake or like an inlet or something. And my brother goes out and he's riding his bike and he lays his bike down right next to the water and then goes away. And my dad comes out looking for my brother and he sees the bike next to the lake. He's thinking he drowned. So he's calling to have the lake dragged and all that kind of stuff. And my brother just comes bebopping home. And it was sort of like, if you're not dead, I'm going to kill you kind of thing. <laughs> and it was, he said, sorry. But I think it was more that he got sorry he got caught. And he would do it again if the circumstances were different. Most times as a kid, I would say, I promised never to do it again until the next time. But Jonah's repentance was accepted by God, so he must have really meant it from his heart. And so now that he accepted the repentance, now the two have been reconciled. So it's possible to walk away from God, do something stupid, and then come back. And if you mean it from your heart, God will bring you back. By once again trusting Jonah to follow orders, he showed him that all was forgiven. Sometimes we say, say, say things like God forgives or, well, God will have to forgive me for this. Too often that we lose the significance of what we're saying. We forget what our sins caused. Think about it. When they, when they filmed um, Passion of the Christ, you know, Mel Gibson did the movie. And the only part that he was actually in in the movie was the picture of the hand swinging the hammer. That was Mel's hand. And he did that, at least according to the article I read, because he wanted everyone to realize that, yeah, it was his sin that caused Jesus to be on the cross. So it's, it's our sin. What we're doing today, that's what caused the punishment for Christ. We didn't live 2,000 years ago, but if we did, we'd have been the one swinging the hammer. So when we sin, you're swinging the hammer. And the things that Jesus suffered for is because of our sin. <clears throat> when you think of sin, think of the worst evil that you can think about in the world today. Murder or whatever. Every time you sin, you're siding with the guy who's in charge of all of that. <laughs> You're siding with the devil. Okay, I'm going to be on your side, devil, for this one. I know you're a murderer and a rapist and all that kind of stuff, but I'm going to side with you on this. That's how serious sin is. And the Bible says that God can't just overlook sin. He doesn't just forget it for no reason. Isaiah 53 says, Surely it's talking about Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities and our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Think about that. God did it. We were the cause of it, but God did it. Smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for, replace the word our with my. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. We like sheep have all gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of me. 
Your sin and the ability to be forgiven cost Jesus everything. And when we flippantly say, well, God will forgive me for that, you're saying all this stuff. All this punishment that was put upon Jesus, you're kind of flipping about how you treat sin. There's a saying that says forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. It's one thing to be forgiven, but another to be trusted again with a task. When you forgive your kids for something, it's a long time before you let them do it again. Because you're not sure yet, you know, if they got mad because they got caught or they're really sad, sorry that they did it. Up to this point, after Jonah refused to go, we don't see any record of God speaking to Jonah because we presume that Jonah wasn't listening. Once we start to leave God and we don't want to hear from God because we know we're doing wrong and we don't want to hear it. Once we decide to disobey God, what we, this is the path. We quit reading our Bible. We quit praying. We quit coming to church. And we quit hanging around other Christians. Because what happens is, in each case, we begin to feel a little bit guilty about what we're doing or not doing. So you get out of the, if you're not going to church, you don't feel guilty after a while. So in Jonah's case, as well as ours, as we said before, God will begin to speak to us in our struggles. And we talked about C.S. Lewis's quote. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God will bring you back. And how much it's going to cost him or cost you depends on what your reaction is to correction. Once we recognize God trying to get our attention and we come back, we can now once again hear God speaking to us because we want to hear it. Either through prayer, preaching, reading his word. Now you're able to listen to what God's trying to say to you. And Jonah was now able to hear God speak to him because he truly repented of his action. Verse 2 says, or verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God ever ask you to do something and you don't, just don't want to do it? But God doesn't stop until you do it. God will keep bugging you until you do it. You won't go to the next level until you do the first thing that God asks you to do. And sometimes there's things that God wants us to do and he's going to wait until you finally give in and do it. How many of us think, you know, if I stall for a lot, maybe God will just forget it or move on to the next person. When we were kids, whenever we'd be misbehaving away from home, we'd have to spend the whole car ride home anticipating the spanking. And man, we were quiet church mouse, not, not a peep out of us, thinking, you know, if this is another half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe dad will forget. <laughs> By the time we get home, he'll just, he'll be over his anger, he'll forget about it, and we won't get it. Well, that never happened, but we really, we were <laughs> praying that it did. And sometimes we think, well, God, if, if, if I just ignore you for a long period of time, you're going to forget and maybe move on to the next guy and, and do it with them and not have me do it. With your kids, it'd be easier to pass it off to another child. Or 
do it yourself. If you ask your kid to go clean your room and it takes them three hours to move one thing, you just want to go in and say, oh, never mind, I'll do it to get it done. But you don't do that because you want them to actually do it to learn and grow. Now, I'm, I'm the painter. We paint rooms, not, a, not an artist painter, but a paint, I paint rooms and stuff. We've tried to let our grandkids paint a couple times. But yeah, I can't. Because I see them and I'm just cringing at how they're doing it. And I just want to take the roller and okay, give it to me. Never mind, I'll do it. Teaching Hudson how to cut grass the other day. And he's, you know, mowing like this. And I'm standing back going, I'll do it, give me the mower, I'll do it. But, and, and the worst part is their homework. Just give me the paper, I'll do the homework for you. And I did that with our kids a couple times. But the way they learn it now is different from the way that I learned it. And they got it back wrong. And I want to go argue with the teacher and say, hey, this is, this is the right answer. This is the right method to get that answer. But they have this, you know, this new math, whatever. But unless you let them do it, they're not going to learn it. God wants us to learn it by doing it. So he's not going to let you off the hook if you ignore him. He's just going to keep coming at you and not let you, my old pastor said, would never go to the next grade. If you're in first grade with God, you're going to stay in first grade until you finish everything God wants you to do. Then you can go to second grade. But if you never make it out of first grade, it's going to keep coming at you until you do. So verse 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So he's quick to obey now. Think about how much grief he would have avoided had he done it the first time. How much grief would we miss if we did things God's way the first time? Things you know to do and say, well, I'll just do it this one time and then you get in trouble. Verse 3 goes on and says, but now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now, four times in, in the four chapters, God calls this a great city. And the archaeologist tells us it was about 60 miles in circumference. It had about 600,000 people living there. One wall of the city was eight miles in length and had 1,500 towers. And the sin of the town was legendary. Think Vegas. What do they call Vegas? What's the nickname for Vegas? Sin City. But none like Vegas, this town would impale people on poles, tied people to die in the hot sun, skin people alive. Children, women, no discrimination, they would do it all. And the, mo the whole book of Nahum was talking about Nineveh's sin and their ultimate destruction. Here's one example of why God was sending judgment. Nahum 3.10. It says, yet Thebes fell, and her people were led away as captives. Her babies were dashed to death against the stones of the street. That's just one example of how wicked this city was. Imagine somebody going to the concentration camps, offering forgiveness to the guards at the concentration camps, and all the soldiers during that time. 
That's how it is. I can, I can see why Jonah was kind of upset. But as we learned the first week, no one is beyond salvation. No one is beyond God's love. God wants everyone at least the opportunity to be saved. Verse four goes on and says, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, if you know your Bible, 40 days is significant in a lot of areas. It's always identified with testing or judgment. Genesis 7, 4 says, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I wiped from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Numbers 14 your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies dies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. Deuteronomy 2, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord, has, Lord your God has been with you, if not lacked anything. And then 1 Samuel 17, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. So for whatever reason, 40 days is, is sufficient in God's eyes for repentance. I'm giving you 40 days, that should be enough time. So you would expect the next few verses or paragraphs to be about the whole town mocking him. Maybe throwing him in jail, killing him. This wicked city, he's going around preaching forgiveness if you did that in, say, New York City or in Vegas or wherever, you would probably get people laughing at you, mocking you. But what happens? He preaches and bang, first, verse 5 happens. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. I would like to be there for that. One time he preaches and the entire town Gets saved. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed, but we do know it was shorter than 40 days. But it sounds like it was almost instantaneous. So, what, a month, maybe a month or less, the entire town gets saved. Now, we don't know what else he said to them. Did he kind of list their sins out for them, like a parchment paper? Did he tell them what God's judgment was going to be? Did he condemn their idolatry or their murders? We don't know what the exact his sermon was other than the fact that God's going to destroy you in 40 days. Now, I don't believe that God just omits things that he forgets them. He, admits, he omits them for a reason. If Jonah started to condemn everything and it was recorded, what would we do? We would try to imitate Jonah's style every time. Seven ways to save your town based on Jonah. We, we've talked about miracles before when Jesus healed blind people. He did it differently every time. Why? Because if he did it the same way every time, that would be us. Okay, Jesus did it this way every time. Let's put money in this guy's eyes every single time. We would make it a ritual rather than faith. It's easy to call out every sin and condemn it. And there's time that we have to do that. But our message isn't a list of everything people do wrong. It contains, our message contains two elements. Love, judgment. 
If we keep the basics, if we keep the message simple, God's plan of salvation, the sign of Jonah, that should be sufficient. But one of the things we have to stick, we have to watch is we not only show, like one author commentator said, we have to have the carrot, God's love, but we also need to tell them about the stick, the judgment. Because the most, most famous Bible verse tells both. John 16, for God loved the world, the carrot. Then he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, the stick, but have eternal life. These people repented not because they heard about God's love for them, although he did, but they repented because they heard about the judgment. Sometimes we want to focus on the love of God, and that's good. We need to focus on that. But sometimes we have to remember there's also a judgment coming, and that people don't want to be a part of that judgment that's coming. The sailors on the boat didn't want to perish. The Ninevites didn't want to perish. Sometimes preaching about God's coming judgment is what allows people to come to God. One of the most famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How do you think that would preach today? I, was, I read that when he preached that sermon, people's knuckles were white on the pew rack in front of them because they were scared to death of what God's judgment was going to be. The important thing here to remember is when Jonah did what God told him to do, God did the rest. We're called to be faithful, not necessarily successful. But then success is measured in the world's eyes, not God's eyes. Look at Noah. Not, not Noah. But Noah with the ark. A hundred years building the ark. Nobody got saved outside of his family. Was Noah a failure? Sometimes we have to look at what God's doing. We're called to be faithful. Noah didn't stop building the boat because nobody got saved. Oh, if no one's getting saved, why build the boat? He built the boat because God told him to build the boat. Everything else is up to God. In today's world, we have, what have you done for me lately? Sometimes success is only the only measuring stick. You're not successful unless they see tangible results. And the question is, are you being faithful in what God's calling you to do? Not necessarily, you can't be successful in the world's eyes. But are you doing what God calls you to do regardless of what is happening around you? If you're being faithful to do what God tells you to do, everything else is up to God. Notice what the people did when they heard about the coming judgment. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and have compassion 
and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The Bible says we're supposed to pray for those in leadership in the government, right? Whether we like them or not. Because this is what can happen. The people in power could actually, God can actually change them. Now we have election day coming up. Pray, vote. And you never know. And what's the Bible say? Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven, heal their land. So that's on us to pray that God changes the course of whatever's happening. We do our part. We're, we're faithful in voting. Results of the vote are up to God. And if you think about it, and I don't like this verse so much, but it's true, the Bible says that God puts those in power who he puts in power. Would I have chosen some of the leaders? No. But God uses those wicked leaders to punish a nation. Once the Ninevites heard about the punishment coming, it got their attention. But Jonah would have had to have also told them the other half of the rest of the story about God's love and mercy. Because they did say, maybe God will relent and have compassion. So he must have shared that somewhere along the lines. They have to have known that God wanted them to repent. And that forgiveness was actually an option for them. But how would they know that unless Jonah told them? And it gives the appearance that the people weren't sure that their sins were too much to be forgiven. Verse 9 says, who knows? God may yet relent. Jonah would have had to have shared the message along with the message of judgment because he knew it was true. And even these wicked people weren't beyond salvation. Verse 10, when God saw that they, what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring the destruction upon them that he had threatened. If this wicked city can be saved, who in your life do you think needs, needs to be saved? Who do you think is beyond salvation? Notice the Bible focus on the coming judgment in this section. It doesn't cover the grace and love of God, even though they must have heard it somewhere along the line. Sometimes people need to be confronted with the coming judgment in their lives. No matter how people live here, nobody thinks they're going to hell. How many of, do you know anybody that really thinks they're going to go to hell when they die? Nobody thinks they're going to hell. There's three people going to be in hell. Hitler, Mussolini, and pick your favorite. We need to remind them of what awaits, either when they die or when Jesus returns. God, I tell you, I'm scared to death of the coming judgment, right, of what's happening on earth to the people that are going to be here through the tribulation and no matter how wicked the tribulation is, that's only seven years. <laughs> then you have hell, which is eternal. But see, I understand what it is, and you understand what it is. Maybe we should remind people of what God's got coming. 
and show them how Christ has compassion on them and wants them the opportunity to avoid it. God's primary desire is not to bring judgment. The Bible says he has no, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He wants to offer compassion and forgiveness. But we have to tell him that the judgment's out there and it's coming, but there's a way out. And that's when we get the opportunity to talk about the good news. You know, whatever happens with the election, whatever happens with the country, that's, you know, it's all up to God. But think about it this way. The church always grows stronger during persecution. The church gets flabby and weak when everything is really good. We take everything for granted. The church in China, the church in, when it was Soviet Union, the underground church was strong even though they knew it was illegal. I don't know what God's going to do with the election. I don't know what God's going to do with the country. But if he really wants people to repent, maybe things are going to get a little bit more difficult. Maybe God's going to turn the heat up a little bit so that people don't have a cushy lifestyle that they actually want to know about what happens when they die. When people in other countries, when they hear the gospel, they have nothing that they're attracted to on earth. So they want to hear about what happens after they die because they've got nothing here. We've got everything here. And we kind of forget about what happens after we die because we got it so good here. We want to be able to share with them that, yeah, you have it good, but all that's going to be gone the minute you die. We got to visit a, uh, I'll close with this, we had to visit a, uh, like a, it's a preserve, or it's a, like a big garden, thousands of acres of gardening down in Myrtle Beach. And it was owned by a wealthy landowner 150, 200 years ago. <clears throat> it was rice fields at one time. And they were talking about how, you know, these huge houses, and they had all these slaves and all these people working for them, and all this land they own, and they had all this money and these things. And we got to go visit the cemetery of these owners. And I was walking in the cemetery going, you know what? They had all this stuff, and they still died. And all this stuff is still here that they left behind. And they all died young. We saw inscriptions that said they had so many children, and four of them died in infancy, and all this stuff, and all the things that they had materially, it's all rotted away. The rice fields are gone. Nature's taking them back over. Everything that we have now is going to one day be gone. And our tombstones will still be there. Generations from now, we'll visit our tombstones. And everything we have now won't mean anything to anybody. The only thing that's going to mean something to somebody is if they get to see us in heaven after we die. That's why our mission is so important. Because we want to be about God's business. Would you stand as we close? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Now, I never want to take for granted that everybody who's in church really has a relationship with Christ. Just because you attend church does not make you a Christian. It does not make you a believer. 
What makes you a believer is recognizing that you're a sinner and that your judgment is coming. But the Bible says that God sent Jesus to take your judgment for you. He took your place. He doesn't tell you that for you to know it in your head. He tells you that and he did that so you understand it and receive it in your heart. The Bible says as many as receive him did he give the authority to become children of God. So if you're here and you've never really received Christ, you've never really asked God to forgive you of your sins because you know you're a wicked sinner. You may think you're a good person and you might be a good person. But in God's eyes, we're all sinners. And our sins have to be forgiven one way or another. Either we trust Christ for forgiveness or we don't trust Christ and we wind up away from God. So if you're here and you've never really committed your life to Christ, you've never bowed your knee before God and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your grace and your mercy. Please forgive me. I know you're the only way that I can make it to heaven. If you've never done that, then you need to do that and be ready for the day either Jesus returns or we die. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. Father, we do thank you that you paid the price for us. That you forgive us of our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you allow us to have a seat in heaven with you. Father, I pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. And that you would fill this church with your Holy Spirit. Because we need your Holy Spirit to work in the lives of the people that we know who don't know you. We need to have that power in us. We need to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in us that gives us the power to witness. And I pray that you would give us the opportunity to do that. That you would open our mouths to the people we come across. If nothing else, Lord, open them up and invite them to come to a church service. Invite them to an outing. Invite them to come to know Christ. Give us that opportunity, that boldness that you gave Peter And allow us to see the reaction of people when we share them under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. Prepare those we come in contact with. Prepare their hearts to receive the message. Let it be good soil that it falls on. And allow us to continue to do what you've called us to do. Again, our job is to be faithful. We will share. We will do what you've called us to do. But Father, we know the results are up to you. So Lord, we commit ourselves to that end. Fill us, energize us, give us opportunity. And then Father, we, give, we turn it over to you. And we expect to see great things because you're involved. So Father, go before us. Make every crooked way in our life straight. And give us the opportunity to be who you called us to be. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night.